You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R, and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. On Belief is a show about true survivor stories of escaping cults and high demand groups. If that describes you and you'd like to tell your story, it can be anonymous please email me at info at onbelief.com. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Season 2, episode 22, is Con, part 2. Last week on the show, we discussed the ISKCON Hare Krishna movement with guest Eric Bernasik. He's here again to talk more about his experience both in ISKCON and what it's like outside of ISKCON and what his life is like today. Welcome again, Eric. Previously on the show, we discussed what it's like to get married within ISKCON group. And now we're going to pick up that thread and talk a little bit about what happens when you're married and you have problems in your marriage. Eric, was your relationship with your guru such that if you had a problem in your marriage, you discussed it with your guru and not necessarily with your partner? No, they, I mean, he, and I'm sure a lot of other gurus, they try to sort of shop that out as much as possible, especially if it's something like, you know, if I'm having a problem in my physical relationship with my wife, no, you don't, you know, you're not expected to talk to your guru about that. Um, I mean, I'm sure that there are some gurus that, that operate that way. Mine certainly didn't. But there are also attempts within ISKCON to create these, um, I mean, they, they depict them as sort of like support networks or communities, but really you're, you're replacing that, the authority of the guru with the authority of someone else. So you're, you know, you're still expected to ask permission or to like be a sort of a part of this collective, but instead of uh, talking to that person, you're talking to another person and you're still subservient to, to someone in the, in the system. During your marriage, were you and your wife on the same page spiritually or did you find yourself sometimes at odds with her? We certainly were at first. I mean, that's, I think, one of the main reasons that we ended up together is we felt that we had a, a pretty similar we had similar aspirations and a similar sort of interpretation of 
the philosophy um, and similar desires in terms of our participation in the movement. It certainly didn't help that we both had the same guru. But as I started to sort of question my, my involvement, then no, we went in very different directions. We started to have very different ideas about lots of lots of different things. So at this point in your marriage, are you communicating your difference of opinion to your partner or are you keeping it to yourself? A little bit of both. I think at first what I wanted to do or what my approach was to, was to communicate with her directly. You're not encouraged to do that, especially if you're a man. Well, I mean, I can't speak for the female experience in Iskand. I'm not sure exactly what they're told, but I was told very explicitly by the people who were my superiors when I started having, you know, problems both in my spiritual life and, and in my marriage that, that men take shelter of men. That's the quote, which really didn't make any sense to me at the time, but I interpreted it as basically you talk to me, you don't talk to her. If you have a problem, you and I work it out, not, you know, you and your wife, which you know, whether it was the explicit intention of that person at the time creates this separation where the person that you're spending the most, most of your time with and are supposed to be, you know, a partner with in not your spiritual life, but life in general, that you're not, you don't feel comfortable communicating with her or with him. And, and you, you know, you become you're basically like, you know, two employees of the organization that just don't have much of a, a rapport with one another. I mean, I think all, part of that is is not just the the fact that it encourages subservience, but it also it reduces the probability that you're going to have any sort of romantic involvement with your partner. And and that's I mean, that's explicit. That's explicitly communicated to you as well. When you I mean, you get married, if you're a man, you get married because you're, you know, you're this sinful person who wants to have sex, but at the same time, you're not, you know, you don't expect that you're going to have any sort of sex life the way that you and I might understand that in, you know, 2020 in, uh, in a Western country. It's like your sex life means um, you're given this allowance to have sex for the purposes of having kids. So your pleasure in that is a byproduct of the fact that you're trying to have a kid. And if you have a kid, then that, you know, that license for sense gratification, as they say, is revoked until the next time that you decide that you want to have a kid. And, you know, that's a very complicated psychological <laughs> situation to find yourself in, especially if you do genuinely want to have sex and find pleasure in sex which, you know, I think a lot of people do, I think it's safe to say. <laughs> Especially in your 20s, that's sort of a big part of your social life and your activities. Yeah, well, I, at this point, I was in my 30s. I'd spent, you know, I'd spent my 20s being celibate. So, you know, I'd, I'd spent a little, uh, a little time at that point thinking about sex and not having it, and then suddenly having sex again and realizing oh yeah, like this was really great. I did really like this, didn't I? <laughs> because you, you go through this psychological process of like convincing yourself that sex is bad 
uh, and that it's the source of your attachment to the material world. And, you know, sort of de-emphasizing or at least attempting to de-emphasize these uh, desires that you have. And then to like immediately, or not immediately, but very quickly come in contact with them again is, you know, it can it can be confusing. Let's just let's put it at that. We've talked about this on the show numerous times that anytime a spiritual or religious practice puts your bodily needs at odds with your desire for a spiritual life, that can be really problematic. And it sounds like in your situation, it was the ultimate marshmallow test. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very extreme version of the marshmallow test. <laughs> so at a certain point in this, you decided that both ISKCON and marriage were not for you. So which one came first and how did you proceed? Well, both were a really gradual process. Like over years. Um, but definitely the desire to get out of the movement came before my desire to get out of my marriage. The process of my getting out of the movement started, I didn't, I, I couldn't have even imagined that getting out of the movement would be the end result. I mean, it really just started as uh, I had some doubts. And instead of, you know, shoving them down and trying to pretend that they didn't exist, I decided to explore them and to do some research and some thinking. And, you know, that just sort of led me in the direction that, that it did. But I, you know, the, the idea at that time, when I, when I sort of start, started that process of allowing myself to question things, the idea that I would stop being a devotee or leave the movement was un, like literally unimaginable. Because I had made a promise that I would be a devotee, not just, you know, for the rest of my life, but, you know, for lifetimes, if, if necessary, you know, basically until I, quote unquote, left the material world and went back to the spiritual world. So the idea that I would like not be a devotee anymore was just not something that I was considering at that time. But I was noticing things in the movement that made me very uncomfortable and I thought were in opposition to what my goals had been when I first joined. And I found myself in this sort of untenable position of really wanting to, to do something for my conscience and see if I could find a way to continue leading this spiritual life but in a way that that didn't, I guess, well, didn't make me so. I guess it was, you know, it's like really a question of cognitive dissonance, where I I I acknowledged that the cognitive dissonance was there, and instead of finding, you know, a way to uh, turn the volume down, I wanted to, you know, really resolve it. Um, and there, you know, there were a lot. What when I in that process of leaving, I met a lot of other people that had gone through the same process and 201 it it was always that situation where you know it it started out as a desire to become more serious to become i guess less of a hypocrite in a certain sense or less of um a superficial practitioner of you know of of uh, krishna consciousness 
but to really understand it more deeply and practice it more deeply and to be kind of, to have sort of an integrity, you know, within oneself. And, you know, I think a lot of people go through that at some point in their, in their involvement in ISKCON. Many of them end up staying and, you know, quite a few of, of us leave, <laughs> just eventually leave. But it was, you know, like I said, it was a, a process over years. And it really involved a lot of research, a lot of reading, uh, a lot of thinking about things that I hadn't previously allowed myself to think about until I just, you know, I came to the point where, well, and also, you know, just weighing options and, and considering the situation. Because at that point, I'd spent, you know, over a decade of my life involved in this organization. I was financially dependent. I was married to another member of the movement. Uh, eventually, I had a child with, with her. So, you know, my family, my finances, my, you know, the, everything was tied up in my involvement in the, in the organization. And, you know, you, you're really like, you know, you're out on a limb at that point. What are you going to uh, basically cancel everything and start over again at, you know, what was I, 35, 36, something like that, you know, in my 30s? Or are you going to find a way to continue to exist in this environment and be okay with it? Be, you know, sort of like reasonably okay with this otherwise untenable situation. We know that it's very rare for someone to have just sort of one breaking point where they just say that's it and they get the heck out of there. So what eventually was the catalyst that made you want to leave? Oh, um... That's a good question. Um, I'm not s sure that, you know, speaking of sunk costs, I'm not sure that it was, you know, a bridge too far so much as it was seeing an escape route, um, you know, an, uh, n seeing a way that I could um, maybe get out and not totally blow my life, <laughs> blow my life up. But, you know, the, the, there were a lot of things that sort of encouraged me, well, not encouraged me so much as sort of confirmed what I had already started to feel about the movement. And, you know, a lot of them were these like sort of little betrayals, you know, personal betrayals that, you know, I know that I knew that I felt a certain way about the philosophy or parts of the philosophy, or I, I felt a certain way about the founder that were definitely unacceptable or, you know, sort of in conflict with what the movement wanted me to believe. But then when I had a few sort of, well, they weren't experiences so much as they were things that I heard after the, you know, from third parties about my guru and other, um, you know, mentors that I had that felt to me like betrayals that really helped to, you know, sort of push me in that, in that direction. And they weren't, you know, they weren't really huge things, but when you're encouraged to see, um, to see people as more spiritual than the rest, uh, for one thing, but also as having your best interests at heart, you know, you know, they're sort of trying to depict themselves as the ones that really 
cared about me and really had my best interests at heart that, you know, when I was going through this process to see that that really wasn't, you know, it wasn't an unconditional love in the way that they had depicted it, you know, that there was definitely a line or, you know, lines that I could cross that would negatively affect those relationships and, and permanently, you know, I don't know if that makes sense. I'm being kind of abstract, but <laughs> well, like I said, a confirmation that was after I'd really left, like I'd, I had resigned from the job that I had with the movement. My wife and I were living in Toronto. My son had been born. I was starting like, you know, you, 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 there are all these things that you don't do for however many years. And then you decide, okay, well, I'm going to try to do these things again. Right. Like, so one of the rules that you follow as a devotee is no intoxication, uh, including caffeine, cigarettes, you know, whatever. You don't take any intoxicants. And so I started drinking again. Uh, um, and, you know, I wasn't like getting drunk. I was just having drinks every once in a while. I was having alcohol, which was scandalous enough. And I was at the same time, I was keeping it from my wife, not because it was a serious problem, but because I knew that she wouldn't approve and it would just create tension in our relationship. But, you know, you can't really hide those things. It eventually came out. And she went to speak to someone who I had seen as not our guru, but another guru that we had both, you know, had a lot of respect for and had seen, you know, in a particular light. And she went to him with the intention of, you know, I'm distressed. I'm having this problem in my marriage. I'm really worried. I don't know what to do. And his reaction to her saying that I was drinking was to immediately say, well, he's probably an alcoholic. <laughs> I thought, well, okay. I mean, that's one conclusion. It's not very helpful to anyone in this situation, but you know, that is a, a conclusion that you could reach. And, you know, it, it was just sort of like a, you know, like I said, it wasn't a huge thing, but to me, it felt like a, a betrayal that his, his idea in this situation wasn't to try to help these two, you know, married people with a young child find some way that they could communicate with, un with one another and find an understanding that might, you know, make the situation more tenable. His solution was to, you know, paint me in the worst light possible, given the, you know, the limited evidence that he had. To unlock the rest of this episode, visit patreon.com forward slash K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R. -E -E it's only $5 to unlock over 20 hours of content.